There's a road that's straight and narrow that the saints have traveled on, paved with all the tribulations of the martyrs that have gone. If you're grateful for their victory and for showing us the way, then give thanks for all your blessings. Get on your knees and pray. Thank God for every flower and each tree. Thank God for all the mountains and the sea. Thank God for giving life to you and me. Wherever you may be, thank God. In this world of grief and sorrow, filled with selfishness and greed, there remains a glory fountain to supply our every need. You can find it in the temple with the welcome on the door. But be sure to count your blessings before you ask for more. Thank God for every flower and each tree. Thank God for all the mountains and the sea. Thank God for giving life to you and me. Wherever you may be, thank God. Be forgiven to the wayward, like the Master told us to. When he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They would change their way of living if they could but understand. So remember they're your brothers. They need a helping hand. Thank God for every flower and each tree. Thank God for all the mountains and the sea. Thank God for giving life to you and me. Wherever you may be, thank God. Hello, everyone. It is me, Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed, the podcast where we talk about parapolitics. We expose the darkness of the occult. We talk about all kinds of strange and interesting things. And if you're listening to this episode, you probably know, both from the title and from the fact that maybe you listened to the last episode, that this is the second part in our series on the occult infiltration of the Vatican, of the Catholic Church. And I hope everybody is doing well today. I am doing pretty good, but... I do have to say, I woke up this morning, I started compiling my notes for this episode and started trying to get in the headspace of doing a podcast today. And I'd been up for a while, and then I started to get a little bit hungry. And I look at the clock, and it's probably about 10.25 or so, and I go, you know what? I bet I can still get a breakfast sandwich. I'm playing it close, but I bet I can. So... I go to a fast food restaurant by my house, hoping that maybe I can get a, I don't know, a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich, or maybe a sausage, egg, and cheese sandwich, some sort of breakfast biscuit. And when I go to order, I say, hello, are you guys still serving breakfast? And I got a no back. And at this time, it was probably about 10.34, and he said, we quit serving breakfast at 10.30. And I go, I understand. Thank you. And so I just got a coffee. But 
Anyhow, it is kind of annoying. I know that that's when they quit serving breakfast. I don't fault the guy at all. I'm more mad at the breakfast sandwich system because who's getting cheeseburgers and french fries at 10.35? At 10.45? I mean, I even feel like 11 might be cutting it a little bit early to start diving into the cheeseburger, french fry, chicken tindy territory. I don't know. That's just kind of my hot take. I wonder if more people at 10.35 come and ask if they still serve breakfast versus people who are going, man, it's 10.35. What I want is some chicken tenders and french fries. So, I don't know. I would tend to think, I'm no expert, but I would tend to think that more people are asking for breakfast sandwiches at this time. But hey, I don't set the rules. But I guess just to continue on this breakfast sandwich rant, it's also like, I know that you guys had the breakfast sandwich stuff back there. Why are you hiding it from me? What else might you be hiding from me aside from these breakfast sandwiches? But who's to say what they're hiding from me? But anyways, that was kind of my ordeal this morning. Truly no big deal. I am certainly exaggerating the severity of the breakfast situation. The breakfast sandwich dilemma. A tale as old as time itself. But, anyhow, we are not here as interesting of a subject as it would be to talk about breakfast sandwiches. But as I said, we are talking about the occult infiltration of the Catholic Church. And if you haven't listened to the last episode, I guess I will do a brief little recap. If you are interested in this subject, I would recommend that you go back to the last episode because it will give you a little bit of groundwork um, for what it is that we're going to be talking about today. And we might reference a couple things from the last episode today, but I guess that it is not absolutely essential. But last time, if I recall properly, pretty much all that we talked about is Marsilio Ficino and... Um, he was someone who greatly influenced Renaissance humanism. He was a Catholic priest, and more importantly, he translated the works of Plato and the alleged works of kind of this mythological figure, Hermes Trismegistus, who ended up being, you know, his supposed writings or what ended up becoming the uh, groundwork for Hermeticism, kind of the occult, the esoteric school of thought. And so we talked about how Marsilio Ficino translating the works of Plato, Neoplatonist, and of all these Hermetic texts really greatly influenced the Renaissance. And Marsilio Ficino didn't do this all on his own, but he was actually backed by the Medicis. And um, specifically, he was backed by um, Cosimo de' Medici who was kind of the patriarch of the Medici family, and he would be the one who would make the banking political dynasty kind of uh, the rulers, really submit their place at the top of uh, Florence, Italy. And so it's kind of interesting to note that as it is now, back then, the elites had a great interest in the esoteric in the occult. So that's basically who we talked about. And then we talked a little bit about how in some of the paintings that can be seen in the Vatican, specifically specifically the uh, Borgia apartments, um, 
in the room of the saints, how you can see, you know, paintings of Hermes Trismegistus and all this Egyptian and mystery school symbolism in the Vatican and in other chapels and stuff like that. And we'll get a little bit more into that kind of stuff today. But I guess the last thing that I'll do for those who are listening now who maybe didn't listen to the last episode, the last part of this recap, is we talked about how Ficino came up with this idea of the Prisca Theologia, which is kind of like the old theology, the ancient theology, the primary theology, if you will, which he believed was this thing that ran throughout all the different religions and pagan religions of antiquity, and they kind of foreshadowed Christianity. And he kind of had this idea that all the stories and stuff that we see in the various religions are all kind of just different window dressing for the true meat that lies at the heart of all these ideas. And they're all telling the same truth. And so he would become greatly influential uh, in the field of thought known as syncretism, religious syncretism, you know, that kind of all religions are trying to hint at the same school of thought. And we also kind of drew some parallels about how he started introducing these ideas to the Catholic Church, and he was greatly influential. It's not like he's just some obscure figure, but um, really him translating the works of Plato and of Hermeticism, and even his own writings would greatly influence the Renaissance. Maybe you can hear the Cane Corso in the background, huffing and puffing. She's an Italian Mastiff, and as I stated last time, she has a lot to say about this subject. But anyhow, so we are kind of going to be expanding a little bit on that. Ficino will be referenced in this episode, and we're definitely going to kind of get into the idea of this Prisca Theologia again, that at the heart of all the different religions are kind of getting at the same truth and how there was this great interest during the Renaissance time period um, in the occult, in, in esoteric thought, and how this would greatly influence um, the Catholic Church, both in its artwork and in its theology, and how it kind of lay the groundwork for some later ecumenism and stuff from the Catholic Church. So if you're kind of wondering how the Catholic Church maybe got to the Pachimama type stuff and, you know, the Pope doing all these interfaith prayers and stuff like this, I think that while a lot of people trace it back to Vatican II, I think that you can just as easily trace it back to the Renaissance, Renaissance humanism. And so let's not understate the influence that Ficino had and that Hermetic thought and uh, Neoplatonism and stuff was having on the Catholic Church at that time. And so they kind of start abandoning, or if not totally abandoning, there's kind of this renewed interest where in, in Platonism and in Hermeticism where it kind of all just been, you know, Augustine and uh, my mind is going blank. blank. Um, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. Aquinas, that's who it was. I don't know why my mind was going blank on that. But anyhow, so there's a bit of a recap. I'm already 10 minutes in, and so far I've only done a damn recap and talk about breakfast sandwiches. So let's get to the point. And we're going to get back to some of that other stuff, but 
All right, now I want to start with someone who I think is an interesting figure when we're talking about uh, Catholicism and maybe occult infiltration, if you will, and that is Johannes Trithemius. And once again, I think I said this last episode, but I'm probably butchering all the names, so don't come at me with, Luke, you don't know how to pronounce anything. I know. I'm stupid. You're the one listening to me. I don't know what your problem is. But anyways, we're going to be talking about Johannes Trithemius, and he was born February 1st of 1462, and his father would die when he was just an infant. And he kind of had the um, archetypal, just mean stepfather come into his life. Just this really mean man who is not very um, welcoming and loving and caring, if you would. And he was against Johann educating himself. So Johann would have to educate himself in secrecy, and he would carry this sense of secrecy on throughout the course of his life. When you think of Johannes Trithemius, think of secrecy. And so he would learn to keep all of his stuff in secret. He would secretly study Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, and he became pretty proficient in his, in these languages. He was a very smart guy, and he was learning all of this in secrecy. And eventually, he left his home at the age of 17 years old in search of further education, and he would eventually find himself studying at Heidelberg University in Germany. He was a little German boy, probably loved sausages and all that kind of stuff. I, and so, anyways, in 1482, he would be traveling back to his hometown from Heidelberg University when he would be confronted with a giant snowstorm. And so he retreated into a monastery, the Benedictine Abbey of Sponheim. And perhaps this would seem to be fate to him. And he would decide to, decide to stay at the Benedictine Abbey of Sponheim, and he would be elected as the abbot, so kind of the head monk of the monastery, at just 21 years of age in 1483, which, as you guys can probably imagine, is an insanely young age to become the abbot of a monastery. And perhaps this kind of reflects how intelligent that Trithemius was, that he was able to kind of get this position at such a time. Um, so he's now a Benedictine monk, and he was also a polymath, and he would spend his time, his time, excuse me guys, studying and writing as a lexicographer, a historical chronicler, and an occultist. But he is probably most often mentioned as the founder of modern cryptography and steganography. So that kind of goes back to the whole how secretive Trithemius was. So um, for those of you who don't know, steganography is the practice of hiding messages in other messages or objects. And so he's very interested in communicating in secrecy. And perhaps later on we'll figure out why he's so interested in communicating in secrecy. And so he is often, too, sometimes thought to be the founder of literary studies and bibliography as, like, actual fields of academic study. So anyways, he's a very learned guy. 
He's um, very productive. He is doing a lot of different things, and he's really kind of a pioneer in all these different fields of study, and he has this great focus on secrecy and being able to communicate with others in secrecy. And today he's probably, if not in relation to being kind of the founder of modern cryptography, he's probably mostly known and mentioned um, for his large contribution to modern occult thought. And we will get into kind of some of his own occult beliefs and how he would contribute to Western esotericism and occult thought here in just a second. But we mentioned how he was a historical chronicler, or you could kind of say that he was a, a very good bullshitter too, I suppose, because um, both in his lifetime and posthumously, he would be discovered to invent a number of sources out of thin air. And he would also just do all kinds of crazy things. He would forge links between the dynasty of Austria at the time with ancient heroes, and um, he would create non-existent, as we said, historical sources to lend credence to his writings and his ideas and his interpretation of certain historical happenings of the time. So he would just completely make stuff up out of thin air no basis for it and you know for a time historians thought that maybe he was just you know mistaken and you know maybe he just didn't remember the names properly or he was getting confused or maybe some of these sources were lost at time but i think that among the few people who do study him now they kind of think tend to think that he was just full of it but perhaps what he spent the majority of his days doing was taking in all the writings in the Sponham Monastery, which was a pretty wealthy monastery, and it was reported to have had over 2,000 volumes of arcane text. Many of these, obviously, would end up being very influential upon Trithemius and had to do with, you know, all kinds of occult and philosophical, and, you know, obviously it's a monastery, probably mainly religious text, but he has all these arcane texts at the monastery. And in 1499, he would publish his theory volume work, Steganographia, and this would be the first printed book on cryptography, and it would have an influence on many people, and specifically many later occultists, such as John Dee, who would actually copy one of the charts from the Steganographia in his own writings in 1591. So already we're kind of beginning to see how he is influencing um, some later occultist. And this book was about magic and specifically how to use spirits to pass messages along great distances. And that's certainly very interesting, but of course many modern researchers, because I mean many modern researchers don't even believe the existence of a soul, of spirits, of anything like that, of, of angels, of demons. So obviously many modern scholars now believe that the works were kind of hyperbolic and that he wasn't actually talking about how to have literal spirits pass messages along distances, but that this was kind of a cover and that this was actually focused around cryptography and steganography. And um, that, but anyways, 
magical workings that he did write down in the Steganographia, this three-volume book, would be used by later occultists, such as Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, who maybe we will talk a little bit about today. He was actually like a student of Trithemius, I believe, for a time. But um, anyways, he would write around the same time period. He's in this same time period, roughly, as Trithemius, and he would write a three-volume series himself on the occult that would be very influential, and he was a Catholic boy, too. And, of course, who else but John D. So they would use these magical workings and um, that he had in his own writings. And it has also been suggested by some that the uh, steganographic methods created by Trithemius would later be used by John D., to hide his communications with Queen Elizabeth I. Because as you guys probably know, John Dee was like a court magician. And um, him and Edward Kelly would create the Enochian system of magic, where you know you try to invoke angels and, and demons and, and all this crazy stuff. But he was also um, working for the Queen. And actually, his, like, secret number that he would sign off with is 007, like James Bond, you know. So it's probably where James Bond, uh, where they got that from. I forgot the guy who wrote the James Bond series of books. But if I remember correctly, I think he was involved with all kinds of spy work and stuff like that, too. So certainly interesting some of the things that uh, you figure out doing this type of research. But anyways... Um, so last episode, we spoke of Ficino and his distinction between magica naturalis or, you know, kind of natural magic, what Wiccans today or people today would know as white magic versus black magic. And it's been said that Trithemius said to his aforementioned pupil, uh, Agrippa, that he should not stop at natural magic but that you'd have to go further in his magical practices. And uh, so that that's kind of interesting because, you know, last time when we were talking about Ficino, he, uh, he was interested in magic, but he was kind of interested in how he could harness the world's soul through, like, crystals. And he had put on a yellow robe and play his lyre and play these Orphic hymns and light candles, and he would have a little bit of wine to where he could get more in touch with the world soul. I mean, <laughs> Ficino was kind of like a Catholic New Age hippie before that was even a thing. I mean, I don't even really know if that's a thing right now. Definitely New Age hippies and Catholics are still a thing. But he was kind of like blending those two back then, you know. So he wasn't as much involved... For the most part, perhaps he was, and it was a time period where you'd probably want to hide if you were from this, except from other initiates, you know. But from what we know, he wasn't as interested in this darker side of magic, which we don't have a whole lot of specific evidence um, with Trithemius, but there are multiple little tidbits that lead us to believe, kind of like him telling Agrippa not to stop at natural magic, that he was probably getting into a more intense practices than um, what we were talking about last episode. So the black magic monk, if you will, sounds like a good premise for a horror movie or something like that. It's probably already been done. 
But to this day, the steganographia is considered to be one of the most well-known examples of 16th century magic, and it is still used by occultists for the purpose of conjuring spirits. And uh, so it gives you a little bit of an idea of what you can find in the steganographia. And of course, there is still a lot of that, you know, harnessing uh, spirits into crystal type goofy stuff that, that you can find in there. And a lot of it does have to do with cryptography and steganography. And, you know, as we kind of already touched on, most modern day researchers think that all this talk of spirits and magic was a cover. And it, you know, it was kind of just a cover for all this cryptography stuff that he was talking about. But what's confusing to me about that is uh, I understand, you know, because he's all into this secrecy. He's all into this secret communication. I understand how he would, you know, maybe want to hide only for the smarty pants elect people all this cryptographic and steganographic stuff that he's coming up with. But I don't see why he would do it under the guise of, like, magic during the time period. Because, you know, except for fancy pants elite people like the Medici's or something like this. I mean, your average person is going to be much more upset by you being interested in the occult and magic than they are going to be with you getting into cryptography or writing just about any other subject and hiding your cryptographic and steganographic secrets in there. But anyways, in 1506, his reputation as a magician led to his resignation from Sponheim. But he would simply relocate and he would take an offer to be the Bishop of Warsburg. And he would take up this position at the St. Jacob of Warsburg Monastery. So as you can see, you know, he has to leave the Sponheim Monastery. But all of this magical occult talk doesn't really seem to damage his career that much. You know, in fact, he just becomes the Bishop of Warsburg and just takes another position at a different monastery. And so even at, in Germany at the time, these, you know, kind of Renaissance occult ideas that kind of have their seed in Florence start to make their way all the way out to, you know, Catholic Germany. And he would continue to have an interest in cryptography and astrology and angelic meditations. So that's where you can probably see John D starting to get an interest and influence in him aside from the you know cryptography stuff that he would use for communication with the queen and other people who john d would be dealing with but you know so trithemius has this interest in cryptography and astrology and angelic meditations but he is believed by some and he was accused by people back in his day to have been involved with demonic workings and necromancy and for those of you who don't know, necromancy is the occult practice of communicating with the dead or even, you know, according to some accounts, raising the dead from their graves or, you know, who knows? If you were to ask me, don't practice necromancy, you're probably not talking to Nana or your favorite historical figure from the past or whoever you're most likely talking to a demon, but hey, that's just me. I'm a crazy guy. Don't listen to me, but maybe you should on that one. But anyways, so 
yeah, he was rumored to be involved with demonic workings and necromancy, and not just this magica naturalis, this, you know, benevolent magic, as, you know, we're told by some people, like drawing spirits into crystals, or other ceremonial workings where, you know, you're like Ficino in your yellow robe playing the lyre while having a cup of wine, and, oh, yes, I'm harnessing the world soul, um... You know, but yeah, he was rumored, at least, to be involved with these much more dark workings. And it's interesting to note that not only was he, you know, reported to have um, do these more extreme practices, but that he was also reported to have destroyed the more extreme parts of his text, which could have possibly contained information on these subjects like divination, invocation, evocation necromancy and maybe even demonic workings you know like the works of john d um and you know even later occultist who he would inspire and it's interesting given all the stuff that is in this degenographia to ponder well what really would there be for him to take out because it's more extreme i mean he was already you know writing about all this other kind of stuff and he's telling his student like agrippa to you know don't just stop at this you know natural white magic you know but take it a step further you know push the boundaries in that regard so it's very interesting to think of what exactly it is that he could have taken out of this text but he would die in Warsburg in december 13th of 1516 and his tombstone would be moved near the, um, man, my my handwriting on this is really bad. I can hardly read it. Usually I take my notes that I write by hand and I type them up, but I was going to see if I can read my handwriting today, but apparently I can't, you know. Um, but near the, I think it says Neumunster Church Cathedral. Doesn't matter. I probably would have butchered it up anyways. Get on Wikipedia. You can figure out that bit on Wikipedia. And uh, anyways... Um, yeah, so his tombstone would be moved near the cathedral, and it would later be damaged by the fire bombings on Germany in 1945. But, although dead, he would continue to live on through his occult works and through teaching his students like Agrippa, who would have their own occult works that would take on a life of their own. own. And he would lay the groundwork for later occultists in secret societies, both in his occult works, but also in his steganography and cryptography, which people to this day are still trying to figure out all the secrets of the steganographia and exactly what it meant. And perhaps all of this magic talk is, you know, just a cover for his steganographic and cryptographic research, but that personally does not make a whole lot of sense to me because I don't know why you would hide your cryptographic findings in something that's going to bring so much flack as magic. Because even though in some of the higher circles of the Catholic Church you have people getting interested in hermeticism, I mean, even those people, you know, that that's just for the initiated and stuff. But they had to keep up appearances for the laymen who were very upset by the occult that, of course, you know, we would never be interested in this stuff. And, you know... Occasionally, you would have people like Giordano Bruno, who would be, you know, persecuted for his occult interest by the Catholic Church. But 
perhaps that's just because he uh, kind of went against the authority structure of the Catholic Church in many ways and not so much his occult interest. And he was also just kind of so flagrant in his occult interest where, you know, a lot of these other guys kept it for the Medici uh, backed crowd of, you know, kind of more aristocratic type people. So you had to keep up public appearances in any ways. And that's also why so much of this occult stuff appeals to the elites like Medici and what have you, because, you know, there's this idea that there's the initiated and then you have the non-initiated. And in fact, keep that in mind, because when we talk about uh, Pico de la Mirandola here in a second, um, we'll have a quote from him that uh, will kind of bolster that idea a little bit and give you an idea of how these people who are um, truly interested in this subject's view people. Hopefully you can't hear my dog snoring in the background. I guess... Um, the Italian Mastiff is interested as Josie is in to this subject. I guess I managed to put her to sleep by talking about a German for so long. So maybe her ears will kind of come alive whenever I get back to Florence and her ancestral memories of being a, a little Renaissance era dog. Maybe even all the way back to the Roman days will... Uh, We'll come back up. But anyways, I'm freaking ranting. So let's get back to the subject at hand. I was standing by the window On one cold and cloudy day And I saw the first come rolling For to carry my mother away be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by. There's a bitter home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the Undertaker, undertaker, please drive slow. For this body you are hauling, Lord, I hate to see her go. Can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? As a bitter home awaiting in the behind her, tried to hold up and be brave, but I could not hide my sorrow when they laid her in the grave. Can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? There's a bitter home awaiting in the 
was lonesome, miss my mother, she was gone. All my brothers, sisters crying, what a home so sad and lone. Can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? There's a bitter home So now let's do a little bit of talking about Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, something like that. But we're going to call him Pico, like as in Pico de Gallo, because I am just a humble Midwestern boy. I don't know how to speak Italian or Latin or any other of these fancy pants type languages. I'm just a good old English-speaking American, and so I'm going to call him Pico. But anyways, Pico was Ficino's pupil. So we talked about Ficino last episode, and we talked about him in a little bit of the beginning of this episode. We're not going to get too much more into him. But he tried to synthesize Christianity and Judaism and Islam by using Kabbalistic and Neoplatonic ideas. So that kind of goes back to that Prisca Theologia that we were talking about earlier. And just a little bit of background about uh, Pico is that he was born in 1463 and he would die in 1494 at only what I believe to be 31 years of age. So he did not get to live the longest life ever. But um, the story kind of goes that he was another just genius guy, just kind of like how when we were talking about Trithemius just a little bit ago, he was very, very, very bright. But unlike Trithemius's stepfather, his family heavily encouraged Pico's education. And, you know, he was, from the time he was born, they were kind of like, you are going to go into the church and you are going to do important things there. And so story goes that by the time that he was 10, they had him studying canon law, which, uh, you know, obviously is a massive undertaking. And it's not what I was doing when I was 10 years old. I don't even know what I was doing when I was 10 years old. I was probably like playing with my belly button or something. I don't know, watching SpongeBob. So, um, you know, he was very well studied, and he studied all kinds of different things. And what his specific contribution would be that he kind of, you know, took things further than Ficino did in this direction is his extensive knowledge of Hebrew and the Kabbalah and kind of the Jewish esoteric thought. And he would write what is called the 900 Theses, which is all about all these different subjects and he would kind of be you know formally condemned by pope innocent eighth and there'd kind of be this you know back and forth between uh, maybe he's all right never mind he's bad uh, maybe he's all right no never mind he's bad and he would eventually be formally condemned and kind of have to apologize but ultimately that didn't affect his prominence among the, you know, Medici circle of people. And it would actually be Lorenzo de' Medici 
who would kind of get him out of trouble with Pope Innocent VIII. And he would say, you know, he was supposed to be brought before Rome. And Lorenzo was like, just let him stay in Florence, you know. And uh, so Lorenzo used his sway, his great sway, to uh, kind of help out his boy Pico. And uh, none of Pico's works would be censored or, you know, and this formal condemnation that happened, if anything, kind of helped to pacify all the Catholics who, you know, sought a more serious punishment, who maybe would have liked to have seen what happened to Giovanni, uh, not Giovanni, uh, or maybe that was his name, Bruno, would like to, well, anyways, they would like to have seen more harsh punishment be met out uh, against him. And uh, Pope Innocent VIII was actually the first patron of Flavius Mithridates, um, who was a Jewish convert to Christianity with an intense interest in Kabbalah. And so Flavius would also speak before Pope Sixtus IV on Good Friday of 1481. And it would be Flavius who would kind of help initiate Pico into the, uh, into the mysteries of the Kabbalah and help educate him in all this Jewish esoteric thought. And Flavius was said by some people to be a homosexual, which who knows if, if that's true or not. Maybe it was just some, you know, some sort of smearing because, you know, there was a very complex relationship, to say the least, between, you know, Christian and Jews at the time and also. But it's also interesting to note that Sixtus IV, who, you know, would kind of have Flavius come and talk on Good Friday... Um, that Sixtus IV was also reported to be a homosexual by Stefano Infasura. And um, Stefano Infasura was an Italian humanist. He was a longtime secretary of the Roman Senate and a historian. But also, some people have said that Infasura is kind of a slut for hot goss. He liked the gossip. So who knows whether or not we can trust that. But anyways, it's kind of just a little bit of an interesting aside, but Innocent VIII would have two illegitimate children before entering the clergy, and he was known for his nepotism and would actually marry his son to the daughter of Lorenzo de' Medici, who in return gave his 13-year-old Giovanni de Lorenzo de' Medici a position as cardinal. So all those people that I just mentioned, they all kind of have some... Uh, Colorful accusations, to say the least, surrounding them, especially for the time. And so, anyways, back to Pico. He received Medici backing, and it was actually Pope Sixtus IV who would establish the Inquisition. I said I was getting back to Pico, but I forgot to mention that. My notes are all out of whack. But anyways, so Pico received Medici backing, and he would become known for being the founder of Christian Kabbalah. And uh, Pico had an ally in Pope Alexander VI. And so he, you know, had all these very powerful and influential people who were kind of in his corner and helped him get out of trouble at certain times for these things that he was saying at the time, which were, uh, you know, very interesting to certain circles. And many people took him very seriously. And many people were not too pleased with all the stuff that Pico was saying, kind of the more traditional Catholics of the time, I guess that you could say. But Pico came up with this idea of the Concordia Philosophorum, 
or philosophical concord, which is basically the same idea as the Prisca Theologia that we mentioned earlier, but just this idea that there is a common esoteric truth at the heart of all the different philosophical, religious, and mystery schools, um, traditions, and that under the exoteric stories, you know, under the, you know, stories that is kind of given to the masses, there are for the initiates these grains of truths that aren't immediately available. And so, uh, you know, this is this is Ficino's idea, which makes sense because Pico was Ficino's pupil. And uh, so we don't really have time here to get too into the specifics of what exactly Kabbalah is, but just a brief rundown, because most of you have at least probably heard of it. Some of you are probably familiar with it on some level. Some of you are probably pretty knowledgeable about it who are listening. But just a brief rundown is, you know, Moses went up Mount Sinai. He got the got he he went up twice for 40 days each time and kind of the idea is there was this this idea in Judaism in Judaism which not all sects of Jewish people agree on using the Kabbalah but um or Kabbalah teachings I should say because it's not like a, a unified thing but there are many Jewish sects who are into um Kabbalah and it's kind of the idea that, you know, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he got instructions on creating, you know, the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, when he got the Ten Commandments, all this different stuff, that it wasn't just that information that he received. You know, they would, I guess, kind of say something like, does it take 40 days to receive all that? And so the idea is that Kabbalah is the mystic kind of esoteric teachings that were taught to Moses and then handed down after Moses, eventually making their ways into Kabbalistic works. And Pico was very knowledgeable in Hebrew. As he was probably, as far as non-Jews go, the most knowledgeable of Hebrew at the time. Definitely one of the most knowledgeable of Hebrew and Kabbalah among them. And he created the tradition of Christian Kabbalah, or Kabbalah. And there is a difference when we're talking about Kabbalah as referring to Jews. It starts with a K. When we're talking about Kabbalah as referring to Christian Kabbalah, it starts with a C. Um, so if you ever see a difference in how it's spelled, that's probably what it is referring to. And there was all kinds of different ideas that go into Kabbalah, um, both among you know Jews and Christians who would later adopt Kabbalah. But the main idea is that you know there's kind of these more secret esoteric knowledge to be had which has been handed down for all this time and that if you have that knowledge that you can do a deeper interpretation of the scriptures so once again there's kind of the exoteric window dressing but beneath it there is this more esoteric reading to be had of the old testament or for pico and the christian kabbalist it would also apply to the new testament but that basically, if you have this secret knowledge, you can read all of these things at a deeper level and you can 
see the truth behind the truth. Um, you know, so there's kind of like this idea that there was the law and then there was, you know, the interpretation of the law and then the Kabbalah would be like the interpretation of the interpretation of the law or something like this. And so this is something that Pico got very, very interested in and, uh, he would incorporate all these different ideas also with hermeticism, which he, you know, was learning under Ficino. And so he is also going to contribute to this idea of religious syncretism. And he's also going to bring in all these different occult ideas, you know, into it. And I am going to just read off my phone a little bit about what is known as the pentagrammaton. So um, there's the Tetragrammaton, which is, uh, you know, not pronounced by Jewish people, but it's the name of God, you know, and they kind of believe that, you know, you're not supposed to pronounce it. I don't know if they know if you can even know with certainty the name of God, but, you know, we're most of us are familiar with the idea of, you know, the burning bush and God saying, I am that I am. And, uh, you know, so that's how God reveals his name. But, um, you know, the Tetragrammaton is the four-word transliteration um, for the name of God. It's usually Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, because, um, well, anyways. But Pico thought that the pentagrammaton was kind of the Kabbalistic revelation of Christ. And it's important, even though that Ficino and Pico were very interested in religious syncretism and the philosophy of Concord, if it's Pico, or the Prisca Theologia, if we are talking about um, Ficino, they did consider themselves to be Christian and their ideas that all these different pagan and hermetic and neoplatonic and Jewish texts ultimately revealed Christ. And so anyways, the pentagrammaton is in, and I'm just going to be reading from Wikipedia because, you know, I'm the best researcher ever. That's what the best researchers do is they read from their from Wikipedia on their super knowledgeable podcast. But anyways, I'm going to read um, from Wikipedia for a little bit because I do think that'll help elucidate what we're talking about a little bit. And um, it'll be just better than me trying to wing it if I just read this. But anyway, the what Wikipedia says is the pentagrammaton or Yeshua is an allegorical form of the Hebrew name of Jesus, constructed from the original form of Jesus to be Yeshua, a Hebrew Bible form of Joshua. And um, it is originally found in the works of Athanasius Kircher and Johann Baptist Grostel and other late Renaissance esoteric sources. And um, the essential idea of the pentagrammaton is of an alphabetic consonantal consonantal framework um, which can be supplied with vowels in various ways and then on the wikipedia page it has a tab for renaissance occultism and that is what we're talking about and so this is an idea that would kind of be adopted later 
but Pico definitely influenced it, and that is how the pentagrammaton came to be. And it's very important when we're talking about um, Renaissance occultists. And it says here on Wikipedia under Renaissance occultism, the first ones to use a name of Jesus, something like Yeshua, were Renaissance occultists. In the second half of the 16th century, when knowledge of biblical Hebrew first began to spread among a significant number of Christians, certain esoterically minded or occultic circles came up with the idea of deriving the Hebrew name of Jesus by adding the Hebrew letter Shin into the middle of the Tetragrammaton, which would be the divine name of Jesus, according to these people, which would be like Yadhe or, you know, Yeshua or Yahashua. There's all these different pronunciation. And this was given a basic Latin tr tr transliteration of J-H-S-V-H. Um, so that's kind of where later I think it'll be adopted into Yehovah. And this could be, you know, all these vowels could be supplied with further vowels for pronunciability. And, you know, this is where you get a lot of the different names of Jesus. And in Renaissance occultic works, this pentagrammaton was frequently arranged around a mystic pentagram, where each of the five Hebrew letters was placed at one of the points. The leather shin was always placed at the upward pointing vertex of the pentagram. And this idea of the pentagrammaton would eventually be funneled into modern occultism by 19th century French writer Eliphas Levy and the influential late 19th century hermetic order of the Golden Dawn. And uh, the Golden Dawn had their own favored pronunciation of this, and they pronounce it Yeheshua. Um, so in Hebrew and Aramaic, the name Jesus, Yeshua, appears as Yad Shin Wah, Ayan, as the related longer form of the same name, Joshua. Which, so anyways, they kind of get into this pronunciation of the divine names. And in Kabbalah, there's kind of this idea that in order to call upon the angelic beings that you have to use the proper Hebrew pronunciation. And this would kind of find their ways a little bit into the thought of Pico, and it would be even later, you know, go into all different other kinds of both Catholic and Protestant and, you know, occult circles. And so, you know, I probably could have done better on that, but Hebrew pronunciation is not my thing. And in the research that I tried to do on the pentagrammaton, it gets really complicated and that's not necessarily to say that the you know i i don't know what jesus's hebrew or you know aramaic names exactly would have been it's a hotly debated issue and it's not something that i have the expertise to actually say with authority you know but it would have been something like what in english we would call joshua which is interesting because uh Joshua in the Old Testament kind of prefigures Christ. He kind of um, shows, um, he's like a, a figure that represents what's to come with Christ. Because, you know, as you guys probably know, Moses didn't end up getting to lead the people into the promised land. That would be Joshua. And Joshua would also do 
a number of other things. He would, you know, lead the conquest of Canaan and all these other things. A very important biblical figure who kind of prefigures Christ, you know. So he led them into the promised land. You could say that he was a type of Jesus. Um, so anyways, this is uh, something that Pico would, you know, influence largely and that would show up in that form, uh, you know, with later Christian Kabbalists and other occult groups, you know, like the Golden Dawn, you know, everybody's favorite who Crowley would get into and Eliphas Levy, who we mentioned just a second ago. Um, that's the guy. Everyone's seen the black and white um, drawing of Baphomet, you know, um, that's Eliphas Levy for you. He's the one who did that. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that he was uh, going to be a Catholic priest, but he kind of left the church at the last moment. And, you know, we don't really know why, but he would end up becoming one of the most legendary modern-day Western occultists. Not modern-day, but more modern Western occultists. And, uh, you know, would influence people like Crowley and all these other people. But also, it should be said that these kind of ideas of Pico would also, once again, influence who else but John Dee, who we've mentioned a number of times this episode. So, back to Pico. Those are some ideas that we just, the ideas that we just mentioned are some ideas that Pico, you know, either directly came up with or either strongly laid the groundwork for. So, let's get back to Pico. In 1492, Innocent VIII was replaced by Alexander VI, who was a Borgia Pope, who some said had, you know, a penchant for some of this kind of, you know, lighter magic of like Ficino and whatnot, you know, whether that's true or not, who knows. And he had a penchant for astrology as well. And he would obtain the papal bulls for Pico's absolution that Lorenzo de' Medici had failed to attain, but, you know, Lorenzo did help to protect Pico. But now, with Pico being formally absolved of heresy, he would receive a personal letter from this newly ascended pope, Alexander VI, and the letter chronologically covers Pico's story of writing the 900 Theses and, you know, all the back and forth with, you know, Innocent VIII and the commission that placed the charge of heresy on him and his fleeing to France before, you know, Alexander you know, would end up saying that Pico, you know, possessed a divina largitas and that he was a child of the church in good standing. And so Pico would place this letter at the beginning of all his subsequent printings of the books that he had written, kind of as like, hey man, listen, like, don't get mad with me. Like, the Pope's not mad with me. Why would you get mad with me? Slap a roar, 
to a land where no sorrows are known. Thank you, fellas.